You are listening to a parish podcast, a reimagined faith community. Have you ever been in some public space, a mall, a park, a grocery store, and someone comes up to you and greets you warmly by name and starts to chat with you, and you have no idea who they are? You can't even figure out where you might know them from. But instead of acknowledging that, you listen on clinging to the hope that they will refer to something or someone in a way that gives you a clue, and hoping against hope that they won't pick up on the blank and confused look on your face. I wonder if that's how the disciples on the road to Emmaus felt on the afternoon of that first Easter Sunday. The companion who joins them on the road at first doesn't seem to know about Jesus' arrest and crucifixion. But then he starts to share such detailed information on the nature and meaning of Messiah that they think he must have been one of them, one of the close disciples. He could only know those things if he had sat under Jesus' teaching. But they just couldn't quite place him. Here's how Luke tells the story. On that same day, two of them were traveling to a village named Emmaus that was 60 stadia distant from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with one another about all these things that had happened. And it happened that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself also approached and began to go along with them, but their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, What are these matters that you're discussing with one another as you're walking along? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Clopas, answered and said to him, Are you the only one living near Jerusalem and not knowing the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus, the Nazarene, a man who was a prophet, powerful in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers handed him over to a sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. But in addition to all these things, this is the third day since these things took place. But also some women from among us astonished us who were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had seen even a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those with us went out to the tomb and found it like this, just as the women also had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish and slow in heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And they drew near to the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going further. And they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, because it's getting toward evening, and by this time the day is far spent. And he went in to stay with them. And it happened that when he reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and gave thanks, and after breaking it, he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he became invisible to them. And they said to one another, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? And they got up that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. For the last seven weeks, we've been sifting through all of the emotions of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem, culminating in his betrayal, 
arrest, rigged trial, and execution. And those emotions are very much still there on the afternoon of that first Easter Sunday. Luke records that when Jesus comes up to them and asks them what they're talking about, they stood still, looking sad. I know that feeling well. After Edwin died, if a stranger asked me what's up, I would just stand there looking sad. It was inconceivable that the events that had forever rocked my world weren't known to everyone within a 500-kilometer radius. And I certainly didn't have any energy to go into an explanation. I would just stand there looking sad. When the Emmaus road travelers were forced to explain, they shared that it was not only the brutal and unjust death of someone they loved, it was the death of their dream that Jesus would be the Messiah who would deliver them. And then, on top of those negative emotions, there was the bizarre story of the empty tomb, which caused them great confusion, and maybe, maybe, a tiny flicker of hope. All sorts of emotions. Into that space, Jesus begins to patiently teach. We read that beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. To a Christian reader, the Hebrew scriptures are full of Jesus. There are what are called Christophanies, physical appearances of Jesus prior to his incarnation. In these episodes, he's often referred to as the angel of the Lord. Most theologians take this as a title that stood for his office, not that he had been an angel, but that he was the Lord who was appearing. A couple of examples you may be familiar with. When Moses sees the burning bush in the wilderness, we're told that the angel of the Lord spoke to him out of the bush. When Sarah makes Hagar's life completely miserable after the birth of Ishmael, Hagar runs away into the desert where she believes she will die until the angel of the Lord comes and speaks to her. There are also symbolic references to Jesus and the work he will accomplish as Messiah. One that may be a little less familiar is King Melchizedek, who comes and meets Abraham after he's rescued his brother and defeated his enemies. We're told that Melchizedek is king of Salem, which means king of peace, and that he's the priest of the Most High God. He comes to Abraham bringing bread and wine and blesses him. Pretty obvious imagery there. Then there is the time when Moses is leading the people through the wilderness and they are attacked by venomous serpents. Moses is told to lift one of the serpents up on a pole and anyone who looks at it will live. Jesus talks about this episode as referring to him. He says that as Moses lifted up the serpent, so he, the Son of Man, must be lifted up so that anyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So Jesus shows up in the Hebrew scriptures in physical appearances, in symbolic images, but perhaps most importantly, there are all of the references to the nature and work of the Messiah in the writings of the prophets. Half of the scripture references in our Christmas carols come not from the biographies of Jesus, but from the prophecies of Isaiah. And it is there that we read about Messiah as a suffering servant, the one who must die to redeem his people. In showing the disciples on the Emmaus Road what the scripture said about him, Jesus would have had lots of material to work with. 
But the Hebrew scriptures offer more than just a bunch of individual references to Jesus. They tell the grand story of God's saving work, a story in which Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the culmination. I used to treat the Bible like an almanac or encyclopedia of God facts. I like almanacs. Before Google, they were essential for solving crossword puzzles. But when I'm looking up a list of state capitals, I don't need to consider that information in the context of the chart of the phases of the moon. To appreciate the average temperature in Saskatoon, I don't need to know who was the prime minister before John Diefenbaker. And I certainly wouldn't try to absorb the whole book as a single story. That approach is perfectly appropriate for a reference book. But the Bible is far more than a reference book. It is the divinely inspired story of God's saving work. An individual text needs to be seen in the context of the verses and chapters before and after. It needs to be interpreted in light of the genre. Prophecy, history, poetry all need to be treated differently. But even more than that, if we take a big step back and look at it all together we can see that it all tells a coherent story that culminates in Jesus. Yet if we simply mine it for emotional comfort or helpful God facts, we miss that. We miss God's progressive revelation of God's self. It may be that the Pharisees, who certainly majored on minor details, also treated the Bible like an almanac, because Jesus said to them, you pour over the scriptures, for you imagine that you will find eternal life in them. And all the time, they give their testimony to me. When I was in a first-year chemistry course at Western, we studied the history of the science of atoms. One of my favorite models was called the Raisin Bun Atom. It was proposed by J.J. Thompson, an early 20th century scientist who thought that atoms were blobs of positively charged liquid with negatively charged particles spread through them like raisins in a raisin bun. Thompson's model was eventually replaced by Rutherford's planetary model, where you get electrons orbiting around a nucleus. And by the time you get to quantum mechanics, we don't even talk about electrons as particles. We describe them with equations. The raisin bun atom sounds quaint now but it was a huge advance over Dalton's billiard ball model. It was good science. And yet, there isn't a single scientist on the planet today who would try to incorporate raisins, or raisin-like particles, into her calculations about how atoms behave. Don't worry if I lost you there, because the point isn't how to think about atoms. It's that when we read the Bible, we could learn a thing or two from those scientists. They appreciate the historic work that got them to where we are now. But they know that our understanding of the atom is progressive, and when we get a better model, we need to let go of the old one. The Bible gives us a progressively clearer and more accurate picture of what God is like and what God expects. Let me show you what I mean. There's a guy in Genesis named Lamech, who is six generations down from Adam, his idea of justice was that if someone wounded him, he should kill them. And if someone slapped him, he should slaughter them. He said that if Cain was avenged sevenfold, his vengeance was seventy-sevenfold. If God had offered the truths about enemy love in the Sermon on the Mount, 
to Lamech's generation, they wouldn't have been able to make any sense of it. They would have thought it was, well, Greek, or maybe quantum mechanics. So they were given an ethic of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which sounds a bit barbaric to us, but it was actually a huge improvement over Lamech's exponential revenge. And as we move through the Hebrew scriptures, we move from the vengeance of Lamech to the justice of the law to the calls for mercy and generosity in the prophets. Jesus makes it clear that when we get to his Sermon on the Mount, his teaching is replacing earlier conceptions of what God expected. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, but I say to you, if anyone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other one also. And you have heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemy. We may find that particular sermon truly inspiring and even exciting, but when someone really is our enemy, when they really do hurt us or worse, hurt one of our kids, it can be tempting to dip into a different part of the Bible, one that supports wrath and revenge. When we feel threatened and unsafe, when the actions of another person cause us immeasurable pain, the ethic of enemy love is hard to swallow and we may prefer to go back to an eye for an eye, or even the exponential vengeance of Lamech. But those scientists, the ones studying the atom, they'd say, you can't do that. We know better than that now. In his long walk on the Emmaus Road, Jesus explained to Clopas and his friend the things about himself in all the scriptures. He showed them that the Bible is not a random collection of God facts, but a story with a clear direction to the plot. And that plot points directly to Jesus. The crucifixion was not a terrible mistake, but the planned climax to the story and somehow part of God's redeeming work. We read at the end of today's text that the disciples knew Jesus in the breaking of the bread. But in another sense, they came to know him as he opened the scriptures to them. They finally saw that the man they had thought was just a great teacher who had met a tragic fate was in fact the Messiah, the Son of God. And they understood the meaning of his life as the final culmination of God's grand story of salvation, a story that swept from Moses through the prophets right up to that Easter day.